0: There's also been a way for a long period of time in which people have been looking out for each other, in which people have been sharing resources, have not only been looking at their own well-being, but that of others within their family and within their community. And you don't have to forego having a healthy business, making money when you are looking to do more partnerships. When you begin to really activate more of this ecosystem model, you have more flow, more clients, more opportunities. It really does open up many more possibilities for you to be connecting with people and creating business opportunity.
1: When you experience something that elicits an emotional response, you respond according to the extent of the emotional burdens you carry. And our burdens come from our past traumas real-time difficulties and challenges along with the heart-wrenching news-on-repeat we're moving through right now in our country. When this happens, our default is often to figure out what's wrong and exile our pain through fixing or masking and doing all of that quickly. But this approach to feeling activated only leads to stuffing and shame, which in turn makes us just feel worse. In these moments, we need to move from asking ourselves and others what's wrong and shifting to asking ourselves and others, how can I help? What do you need right now? I find this approach especially important in our places of work. And our places of work, shoot, they can be ground zero for some really painful experiences or where we relive difficult life experiences. When we can connect the impact of our traumatic and difficult life experiences to how we lead, that builds the foundation for a trauma-informed culture. And it also moves us out of an individualistic lens to a collective approach to healing and change. And when we can name the traumatic experiences that happen in our places of work or in our story without retribution and move to accountability, repair, grief, and comfort, this also builds a trauma-informed culture that moves us beyond pathologizing pain and struggle to normalizing it. Shoot, even healing it. I'm Rebecca Ching and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders to themselves and others. Now, over the years, I've received a lot of pushback when I brought up the word trauma in relation to workspaces. The intensity of this particular feedback may have changed a little over the recent year or two, but there's still a lot of resistance to this word, especially in traditional workspaces. A few years ago, I was having lunch with a group of leaders from various business settings, healthcare, consulting, tech, We're all sharing what we're working on. And when I shared, I was excited about bringing trauma-informed approaches to leadership and business spaces. Their collective eyes grew wide and the conversation screeched to a halt. After an awkward pause, one of my colleagues looked up at me and said, Rebecca, you can't use the word trauma at work. And then the others at the lunch table quickly agreed and went on to share other words I should use instead, like, These are good words, right? Compassion, courage, empathy, and so on. And when they took a break, I asked my colleague who balked at the word trauma why that word caused such a reaction in him. He took a deep breath and then while shaking his head just stated, because it's too much to bring that topic to work. And I asked him to explain what he meant by too much because my sense of too much is clearly a little warped after 20 years of doing trauma work as a psychotherapist, right? <laughs> and he went on to explain that he didn't feel like he could deal with everyone's problems. And that naming trauma felt like an invitation for everyone to just dump their personal stuff, which he said was simply not something he was equipped to handle. Now, I think about this conversation and this feedback a lot. And, and since this conversation, which happened about a year before we entered a global pandemic where The losses have been immense and continue to be immense personally and collectively. We've all lived them together on top of the reckoning with racial justice, financial stress, democracy teetering on the brink of falling, and more losses that just sadly have continued. It's just important to state that trauma is real. And one of the core tenets of healing trauma is community And lately, community has been, well, tricky, right, and complicated, and also a place where we're working through so much we're experiencing right now. I believe if companies and organizations care about retention, culture, and bottom line, and I know they do, it's imperative to bring in a systemic and ecosystem approach versus a top-down, hierarchical, and individualistic approach to leading. A lot is asked of a leader, but when the whole community is moving forward together, guided by principles that foster both safe and brave spaces, shoot, call me idealistic, but this is where we can cultivate change individually and systemically. Now, I want to talk about uh, SAMHSA's concept of trauma-informed approaches. This is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And they state, a program, organization, or system that is trauma-informed, one, realizes the widespread impact of trauma and understands potential paths for recovery, two, recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in clients, in customers, in family, in staff, in community that are all involved with the system, three, responds with fully integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, practices. And four seeks to actively resist re-traumatization, which to me is one of the most important ones. So the deep connection between community and healing, it runs deep. Okay. I know, I know many in the business and leadership space do not like to talk about healing. I like to talk about optimizing, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, agency and taking action. <laughs> They say it crosses a barrier that many are not comfortable with, like my colleagues shared with me earlier. But I think this mindset leads to the pressure to bifurcate who we truly are by separating the parts of us who work and the parts of us who hold our story. And this bifurcation causes us to shut down and exile parts of ourselves in ways that diminish community because without trust and transparency, we end up in a performative space and these superficial spaces only further harm. Now, I'm not saying work needs to be therapy, but I offer our workspaces can be therapeutic for individuals and the collective. The communities we lead can be spaces that support the individual's history and the collective experience. To build a space that holds these values and allows for these kinds of ecosystem shifts, it requires a lot of support period. There's no way around it if you want your places of work to be vessels for healing. And my guest today has an approach to leading that supports workplaces to be thriving businesses that build the kinds of communities that both heal and push back on the power over approaches so many of us were raised in and trained in. Pamela Slim is an award-winning author, speaker, business coach who works with small business owners ready to scale their businesses and IP. She is the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, Body of Work, and The Widest Net. Pam and her husband, Daryl, co-founded a Main Street Learning Lab in Mesa, Arizona, where they host scores of diversity community leaders and regular small business programming. Now listen for the questions that shifted for Pam when she moved from thinking individually to organizationally and pay attention to her thoughts on the role of a leader and the approach they need to take with those they lead. And notice when Pam talks about the power we can have when we really trust individuals that they know what is best for them and their work. Now, please welcome Pam Slim to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Pam, welcome. Thanks for having me. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I've been following your work for a long time. And like many, I've been impacted by you. So it's, it's a little surreal actually getting to meet you. So I feel like you know read your books and seen videos with you. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation and learn from you in real time today. And I'd like to start by talking about how so many people are feeling weighed down by work right now. And well over a decade, you felt the same, different circumstances going on in our world. But you left your corporate job to start your own business. And I'd love for you to share what burdens weighed you down at the time that made it clear that you needed to leave your corporate job.
0: For sure. Believe it or not, it was 26 years ago. So it's been a long time for me. And when I left my last real job, as I call it, at, at Barclays Global Investors, which is now BlackRock. And for me, it was it was a couple of things. I had just turned 30 and I had been working really hard. I actually loved my job. I I had a great, great team, amazing manager, amazing VP. uh, And I was in the learning and development arena and we had just an amazing team. At at the same time, I had also been um, the volunteer executive director for uh, Capoeira Group. Capoeira is an Afro-Brazilian martial art. And so I did Pretty much by day, I would wear my pearls and nylons and go downtown San Francisco. And then the evenings and the weekends do many, many, many classes, outreach. We built a youth program. So I was just going probably 80 to 100 hours a week all during my 20s. Wow. And it was exhilarating until it wasn't. And <laughs> I got pneumonia. And I think my body was just like, that's a little bit too much, even when you're young. And so at the same time, we went through a merger, and both my amazing director and VP left to go other places. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really noticed, like, it's just time for me to make a change. I had no intention when I left to be working for myself. I thought I was just going to quit, go look for another job. And it was, so it was a real surprise to me when I ended up working for myself.
1: Oh, it's interesting, too, for about seven years ago, this time, I got pneumonia myself. And that was the beginning of a major shift in my life, too. It's amazing how our bodies, they let us know when we're not listening, (laughs) for sure.
0: They really do. Yes. And a lot of those, like pneumonia, or sometimes people have Graves' disease, a lot of the autoimmune are definitely signals of things that can be triggers. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And you ended up writing a book about kind of your experience of leaving your job to ending up working for yourself called Escape from Cubicle Nation. It really, you know, puts you on the map in a lot of entrepreneur and, you know, leadership spaces. And it became a giant permission slip and a bit of a map for people to leave the work they felt like was a prison and to create thriving opportunities outside of what we used to think of as traditional, the traditional ways to work. And I'm wondering, as you look back on this time, 26 years ago, what would you mm-hmm. say today to your former bosses and, and even say to your younger self?
0: As, as I said, a lot of the inspiration that I had for Escape from Cubicle Nation came from, I was a 10 years of management consulting. So I started a management consulting practice and did that for 10 years before I started the Escape from Cubicle Nation blog. And so earlier on, I was so lucky because I had amazing managers and I had the experience of really being in an environment where it was amazing. I Earlier in my career, I had certainly been interesting, weird places. I actually worked for a commune in San Francisco. So like half the employees were communes in this very weird, polyamorous, like whole situation that was just kind of fascinating and you know, very San Francisco. Very. And so so I, I have been in many different situations where I've seen leadership, but definitely in spending 10 years inside hundreds of different organizations. Uh, There's a lot of patterns that I I saw and and frankly continue to see today. I've just been on the road for the last month and so I've been talking a lot to folks about it, that folks that work for larger companies. On one hand, I, I look at the individual path and then also for the organizational leadership path. On the individual path, I know for me early on, it I, when I really shifted my thinking to I'm looking for all of my meaning and validation to come from one specific organization, mm-hmm. it was really shifting to say, how do I really know myself? What are the best environments for me? What do I want to build and create in order to be excited about what I'm doing? Also recognizing that I wouldn't necessarily be doing the same thing for the rest of my life. It was looking as if no matter what work mode that you have, you're always self-employed, which I really believe that like nothing can guarantee that you can have stable and predictable employment. (laughs) If you work for yourself, you know, you are working every day to make sure that happens. If you work for somebody else, you can show up one day and your job is no longer there. So there's that certain attitude, I think that's really helpful from the individual perspective, to be really clear as to how you're showing up to the work and continually bringing value. On the organization side, I I kind of fondly called it mafia culture within Escape from Cubicle Nation, where there has historically been organizations that put a focus of, of using terms like, you know, we're a family, we're all really connected, we put huge investment for folks when they're there. And then if somebody chooses to leave, or even in the case where they're laid off, all of a sudden they become untouchable out of the family. If they've people leave by choice, they can feel betrayed. And so like people in who are remaining at the organization can't really talk to that person anymore, or if somebody's laid off. I have seen up close and personal in my years as a consultant, the pain and the anguish of deep relationships that people have at work all of a sudden fragmenting one of the I one of the stories I tell in in escape was uh, my dad worked just a block away or so in San Francisco at um, a big public utility and he had worked there for many years there was somebody in his department that had been there for 20 years her father had worked for the company her grandfather had worked for the company and he called me one day and he said, can you come over? And I went over and they laid off every single person in the department except for him. He was like peering around his cubicle, ironically, and like nobody else was there. And this one fellow employee was given 15 minutes to pack all of her belongings in a box and to walk out. And I think about what that must have felt like for her to have this identity that went back two generations in terms of people working within the company. And so there's a really weird, very devastating, emotionally devastating experience when we look at more through the, the organizational culture and the in, Employer-employee relationships through this mafia culture lens. These days, I think we need to look at leaders as partners. People can go somewhere by force or by choice. Who knows if they may bring in your next customer? They might refer somebody else to work in the organization.
1: Hmm. It's almost I have the phrase like "you're dead to me." Like if you're not in my little bubble, you are dead to me, and anyone who who you know and they need to be dead to you it's kind of the message and so this awkward yes weird that is it is a mafia kind of vibe when you do leave this bubble um and I think that's probably why a lot of people stay in work that isn't working for them because they yes. sense that they, that 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 as you know this desire for belonging is so primal to us and so that this is interesting though because as we're in what's kind of being dubbed as the great resignation. We're still figuring Mm -hmm. out what that is. And I heard you in a recent interview on this note, and it kind of building on what you just talked about the individual needs, but you said not understanding the individual needs of employees and not creating more of this collaborative community-based approach and being very top-down is a part of what I think is driving the great resignation. And so just in the just thinking about from what you've seen with people who have left, you know, even even at the risk of losing their you know an identity, a culture, a community they've known. Why do you think so much work today is unsatisfying?
0: There are a number of things. I, I don't think we can ignore just the recent. Pandemic and all the mental health challenges that everybody has had just getting through that figuring out how to navigate when companies are under such tremendous stress often as they're just trying to stay alive and reinvent and do those things and just the personal and professional toll We're we're in this really extraordinary uh, place. I when I was speaking last week to a number of technology partners at a conference, I, I summed it up saying we're like socially we're a wreck. <laughs> like every single dimension of the way in which we are connected with each other, politically, socially, environmentally. You know, we've experienced terrible things in terms of violence, gun violence. It's there's so many different ways in which our social construct and contracts are broken that can't not have an impact on people's everyday life. I think that's going to show up in personal lives and also in work lives. So that I think is part of the context. Another one though is where we just haven't really shifted fully into the mindset that where you look, especially with the new generations that are coming up, there's some folks, it's, it's always problematic if you just put an entire generation in a set of affective or behavioral characteristics. Because I don't know, I'm 55. I'm not sure how old you are. I look at people who are born in 1966, like the year I was born. I'm sure we are totally across the board in terms of what our behaviors are, right? Some people super proactive, creative. It doesn't really make sense just to have a generational thing, even though... Of course, our generations are impacted by different historical things. We're parented a little bit different based on wh- how we grow up. But I know for a lot of folks who might be hiring um, those that are from younger generations, there is a different expectation right away that folks aren't going to stay in one place forever, that there is more of a connection that they're looking for with purpose and meaning, that having work-life balance, having flexibility, having flexibility. Uh, often you know they may work really really hard but not necessarily in a you know 9 to 5 kind of construct or some of the expectations and i think in if we look at the the health of how good partnerships are constructed the way that we would look at partnerships with our clients and customers really having a built-in respect for who they are and what's important to them why would that be different in the way that we're looking at these other adults who were choosing to work with, who have needs and feelings and aspirations. And, you know, it, there's a whole number of things that have to happen in order to create that kind of environment. Sometimes there needs to be more transparency about, you know, business results, uh, people have to be brave to actually address the elephant in the room. Like I realize that not all of you may work here forever. Some of you may have ideas where you want to go out on your own. And for managers and leadership to be able to entertain those conversations and to address issues um, as adults is is a bit of a shift. I, I don't mean to simplify it, saying that you know leadership has not had components of a, of adulting. But I, you and I, before we started recording, talked about how we both have teenagers. I actually see it sometimes the same way that parents will talk to teenagers when they're really going through a new stage where they really do have a lot of insight and self-awareness and it just doesn't work uh, to be really like having a relationship where you're just continuing, hopefully never were totally dominant, but where you're not respecting the fact that this, this individual might have a really good understanding of who they are, what they need and you know, I know my job as a parent is to lean in and, and kind of notice it. So those same kinds of dynamics, I think, can happen in a new leadership culture. And I just think that's the way we're going. You can't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. People are not going to stick around, as we've seen with the Great Resignation, if there's other viable alternatives.
1: Well, what I'm seeing with the Great Resignation, at least with the folks I work with, this <laughs> mid-level and high-level jobs are getting vacated it's not just these younger generations folks are yeah. are done and so i want to circle back to what you addressed too just i mean we're we're at the very beginning stages of sorting through these last 2 years and it's we're still mm-hmm. i mean in, in my community i mean covid is really hitting our community hard right now mm-hmm. and so that it's not gone and it's impacting so much and so with your experience with your consultancy work walk me through some of the, I want to get specific here, the consistent barriers you've seen in your work with companies that get in the way of truly understanding the individual needs of their employees.
0: First is not talking about short, medium, and long-term goals with employees. So Hmm. it makes sense when you're in the hiring process that you're talking about hiring a person to do specific tasks within the company. Clearly that's why it is that they're mainly getting paid. But from the beginning, if you can have a deeper understanding and create a, culture of safety where somebody can say, even as a brand new employee, here are some of the things that I'm thinking. Like I can see myself getting excited of really growing in a career path or eventually I see this as a stepping stone where maybe I would want to um, open my own you know, part-time consultancy or whatever that path is just to normalize the fact that um, people do have a variety of different aspirations is really important. The other thing which we've seen so clearly is just about how much somebody's personal life, the things that they're dealing with at home are going to be impacting work. And I feel like that's one of the, one of the positive things that's come out of a lot of pain and challenge is I just feel like there's more awareness. There's more openness mm-hmm. uh, of the fact that people are emotional beings. They have, you know, challenges. Always you want to be respectful to have somebody have agency over what they share and don't share for what's happening in their personal life. I believe that really strongly. You can't mandate people to be sharing everything that's happening personally, but you can create an environment where there's trust enough for people to be able to show up and say, you know, I'm having a hard time, you know, or or I need, I need some time off and to not necessarily be questioning it. You know, sometimes there's so much rigidity around, the requirements that it doesn't feel safe or people can feel like they will be penalized if they actually do take care of their mental health or maybe something Mm -hmm. that's happening at home. And over time, that's a huge trend I've heard over a couple decades now of people just being tired of having to pretend everything was, was okay to have it together and maybe to be fighting for having some time to be attending to other things. Um, And then the other thing is just probably the last theme for me is what I alluded to earlier of not addressing some of the elephant in the room, which is just talking about the the entire world of work. What are other opportunities that are happening out there? I wish there was much more dialogue between those folks that were doing startups, entrepreneurship and organizations so that there could be learning from each other, like the beautiful operationalizing of effective work practices that happens in a larger organization could be so helpful for startups and some of the leadership wisdom you get from like scaling be so helpful. I learned so much and a lot of the approach to uh, prototyping and, you know, being more creative and non-hierarchical could be super helpful, you know, from the startup world. So that's the other part is where there's just really clear walls. And I think that makes it makes people not feel safe to to talk about yeah. some of their entrepreneurial aspirations.
1: That's such a good point. You're right. They really are siloed as I'm sitting here listening to you and even polarizing against each other instead of just yeah. we're all trying there there is a lot, lot more similarities. It's just different means to the end or different you know, focuses or whatever that may be, but you're right. And, and I'm seeing the, there's, there's this element in the entrepreneurial space, right? That if you go and get a quote, real job, you've sold out, like you, you, you've kind of lost. And then I see in the corporate space, like holding on for dear life to how things were that hierarchical, this desire To really like, like what I'm hearing from my clients is these old school bosses, like, I don't know that you're working unless I see you, (laughs) you know, kind of Mm -hmm. thing in person. How do I trust? Not a lot of trust. And, and again, a losing touch with the humans that are working with and for them versus just the bottom line and profit. That's a really, really good point. So I'm wondering how do, how do leaders and business owners take a more active role not only just for them, but for those that are working with and for them to make meaning with the work that they're doing.
0: The, my last book, the one uh, before The widest Net Body of Work, was really addressing specifically this whole idea that the focus of our work is really what we're creating. I think a lot of people, as Dan Pink so aptly put it in his book, Drive, that, that folks are driven by uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose in in work life those based on the research that he did for his book were the main drivers that really give people a sense of purpose and meaning and to me it's always related to what it is that you're creating you you get people on interesting projects you focused on interest and mastery of how can you really be doing this work in a better interesting way that's what i adored about the years i spent in silicon valley and working inside a lot of really smart organizations it was just endlessly fascinating to me to see how like experts could come together to be working on interesting projects and really focused on the mastery. But we look at the autonomy and the purpose. Hmm. That's where you need to be having these conversations and really connecting people to, uh, first of all, yes, you don't need to be hovered over. (laughs) There needs to be a clear way in which you can demonstrate what you're doing and what you're building without somebody necessarily, I mean, during COVID, of course, right, it wasn't possible for people to physically be in the same place, um, which in some ways, you know, opened some doors. But the purpose part is where there needs to be a clear, deliberate, multi-layered conversation about the nature of the work. There's Mm. often the mission statement for a company that's not always brought into the deeper conversations with maybe leaders and their teams like of all the companies that you could work for why did you choose this particular one and sometimes it's reasonable like it was in a great location nice people great pay lots of good paid time off I mean we all understand there's some of those dimensions but when you're really being deliberate and when you have a way that you can tell the story about why it is that you feel passionate about working for a company, it really does make a difference. And not in the manufactured way of just trying to roll out you know, the mission statement and just give a concrete example, but really bringing the deep connection, I think, every day in the way that you work. Like, why should we be doing this work? Why should we be working so hard? That to me is where the purpose um, always shows up. And I know for so many years i Uh, that I did consulting work, that's also the place when you're open to those conversations that you may actually follow the path in the work itself for what you're creating Mm -hmm. that is more aligned with a customer journey. When you're saying like, no, our purpose is to be, let's say a healthcare company, you know, delivering just much better, more effective healthcare, then you could critically look at maybe some gigantic initiative that's really complicated and overwhelming and say, is this really helping us to be, you know, delivering like better, more effective healthcare? And it's just the quality of the conversation you can have, both from connecting people to the purpose and then making sure that you're delivering on that purpose when you have the conversation. That to me is where you get this really beautiful synergy to use mm-hmm. a corporate word, uh, but where it 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 really does allow you to to, to do great work as opposed to just get stuck in bureaucracy and egos and fiefdoms and all these things that can keep people super frustrated and wanting to leave.
1: Yeah. I'm just wondering in your work, how do you help shake up some of those insular bubbles um, where there is those, those fiefdoms and this, you know, it it gets again, very insular and it gives us false sense of safety so that these leaders are feeling good about it, but they're, yeah, it just it, it seems to create more of a divide, even with this kind of level, because the bureaucracy is such a pain in the butt. Yet, I mean, I've worked in all levels of government. I've also worked in big corporations. There's this weird comfort that I feel like leadership loves. You got to go through the trap shoots, and you got to do this. What do you say to leaders that are still clinging on to the bureaucracies and the top down? What do you say to them? Just and, and that helps them go, okay, I can give this a try. What? What's the invitation for them and what helps them kind of break through some of those fears of leaving these old ways of doing business?
0: They have to come with a concrete reason why the change has to happen first. Mm. Over so many years now, I believe that's the case. Either if change does not happen, they may not survive based on market forces, or there's something that happens within uh, hopefully at least a few of the leadership team who has significant accountability and the ability to influence and actually hold people you know, accountable for performance, where they are seeing things about the way that their culture you know, is, is, uh, is rolling, where they recognize that if they don't change, that they will you know, lose people. I see that a lot around companies that might resist doing equity work, I see that amongst companies that refuse to, yeah, have any kind of folks that might be questioning what's happening. It, nobody wants to change. It is hard to be breaking out. There, There is a safety. There can be certain security in having processes. And I'm a huge fan of processes and operations. It's just a core component of how you need to run a business. It. it You will try to do backflips if you're coming into a company or sometimes if you're just a leader where those that really hold the true power in the organization, decision-making and holding people accountable, if there is no compelling reason for them to change, if there's not a personal reason to change – it's very, very hard to make it happen. To me, that's the essential element. When that is there, when they've had some really significant shake it up kind of realization, sometimes pressure from the board, sometimes a personal experience, that's where then you can start to lean in and get really creative. You have to be very deliberate about the space that you create to have deep conversations, you need to be able to, you know, have clear and direct communication, make it make it OK to talk about the the hard issues and then begin to work around usually a bit of a different way of communicating where you're not afraid of input from people. I think one of the false assumptions that people make when maybe you begin to create more of a participatory partner like leadership culture is that it means, okay, if we're just going to ask everybody what we can, what we should do, then it means we're going to 100% lose any sense of decision-making or authority. And I, I don't believe that's the case. You can have input. You can be transparent about the process. What are you going to do with the input? How are you making decisions? And then ultimately really make decisions based on you know, what, what you think is the best for the company. And then people will either agree or they won't agree, but at least it'll be more transparent and not just an exercise of like, oh, let's do mm-hmm. a little bit of engagement and knowing from the beginning that you're probably not really going to listen, or you only want to hear the good stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. and
0: And that's the part where just people get scared of like, what if they really tell me what it is that they're thinking? And you just can't
1: there's no trust built there in any way, no. individually or in no. a container. And I'm just thinking about what you said about this desire to change. The, the saying, "There's a problem to be solved," and awareness of that to be ready to make that shift. And so often, folks come to that place with really big crisis and want to fix now. And but every now and then, there's someone who's like just reading, reading the room, looking around them, and going, "Oh, geez." okay, this is not who I want to be. This is not who I think we want to be. And to me, I find that change happens best when it's not that huge crisis because it's more sustaining. Sometimes it's harder. Um, But I I do, I really appreciate that because you can't, if leadership's not ready to make the change, then it's just not going to stick. It's systems theory 101. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and your action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. So this takes me to my next question, because you've talked about the difference between an empire building approach and an Mm -hmm. ecosystem approach to growing community and business in your latest book, The Widest Net. um, Can you walk me through the difference between those two? I just want to start there first.
0: I I juxtapose this a lot in the entrepreneurial world, but you can see it also in corporate that sometimes just as a as a metaphor i think people like to use empire culture like literally saying i'm really excited about you know starting my own business and growing my own empire i want to crush my competitors i want to dominate and uh i mean i'm a former martial artist for a lot of years as i said capoeira and then mixed martial arts i'm i'm as much excited sometimes about like getting revved up about competition as somebody else in a specific context that can be like in an environment that's open and fun where people can get excited about doing great work and right, like having that fun challenge. It's very different when you look at the opera, really operationalizing what I see a lot in my own space. It, it literally becomes more empire like culture where those on the top do extremely well Those who don't are actually belittled. There's often not really a concern for the people who work for you. There's a race to the bottom of the pricing where you're just trying to hire the very cheapest folks and just turn everybody around, uh, turn over the work really quickly in order to make the maximum amount of profit. And it's a very transactional kind of an approach to business. What I see and what I think is really effective, and it's a clear point of view, having just studied it for really the last seven years as I was writing the book, is I think more realistically the way that we work, both within our individual markets, but then also within larger regions like what we have here in downtown Mesa in Arizona, is it really is this ecosystem of people who are each providing specific services, products, support, education, resources to be helping our clients and customers to reach their goals. It's rare that any one company or a service provider can solve all of the problems that any company has, <laughs> um, and so when we learn more how to really zero in and be excellent in our area of expertise, but look to partners, it's a great way to have business referrals. It's a great way to make sure we're looking at each other and really supporting the growth and development. I know a lot of the work we've done here. I have a, my husband and I have a what's called Main Street Learning Lab, which is a small business learning lab right in the middle of Main Street. And we have so many different partners that we work with down here. During the shutdown, we had tremendous cohesion because we all had relationships Mm. and we were able to keep all the brick and mortar businesses open. You think about the, the ripple effects of what would happen if we had massive kinds of layoffs or shutdowns. For people, you know, in in one particular region, it it can be something that takes decades to recover from. So I just think it's more realistic in terms of how we do work. It's more effective to have more flow. And it's more fun. I, I don't like to have to do everything myself. I love having really smart peers and colleagues and people in other businesses that also support the work I'm doing with my clients.
1: So I'm thinking of a lot of the leaders I work with who are solopreneurs or small business owners. um, They're overachievers. They're very talented. They're hardworking. And they really, they want to be, with the best of intentions, be everything to everyone. And they come Mm -hmm. to me usually burnt out, overwhelmed, knowing something's got to change, but their hearts are in the right place and what they do and offer is full of skill and excellence. What do you say to folks who are running kind of lean small businesses or service-based businesses, especially how an ecosystem approach can really help them and they're not letting people down. This is my curiosity, you know, Mm because there's often a sense if I'm referring out to somebody else, I am, I'm letting them down because I'm not everything to them. What would you say to those leaders that are rumbling with that?
0: I'd say first it would be pretty hard in whatever capacity that you might be um, providing a service to somebody. So if you're a lawyer or you're a consultant or you know have a marketing agency, it would be hard to essentially have a law degree, a finance degree, know every single thing about growing a business. The the nature of the the intersecting kind of problems and challenges that our clients face when they're trying to do something. So for me, my clients are always trying to grow or scale their businesses and to be professional services business, right? We probably share some similar kind of client profiles, right? We're what I call peer mentors to each other. So we can, we can do similar work, maybe each with our unique flavor. In order for them to do that, they're by definition, are other service providers that they need to do it effectively. I always recommend everybody read Profit First, that they work with a CPA, that they get a tax attorney. I do a lot of work in certification and licensing programs, they need an intellectual property, trademark attorney. It is essential to them doing the work effectively that there are other service professionals. In, in cases like you and I, where we might offer similar services for our clients, the more specific and specialized that we get, the more we understand the nuance that we each have in what we bring to helping our clients, um, I, it, it's, it's a choice really of really believing in a strengths-based approach, that even within a specific area of maybe business advising around growth, that there are certain things that you're just by definition going to do better than I am. Mm. And so, you know, that's always where we make choices around the design of our services that we figure out the best way to do it. Sometimes it's developing a deeper team where we can get the the kind of fuller support. But for me, I do a lot of day-to-day work of referring my clients to other service professionals and vice versa. And that's part of what keeps the flow going.
1: So I want to spend a little more time on this um, ecosystem approach. And and i love for you to share some really practical steps leaders and business owners can take to move towards an ecosystem approach to leading and running their business.
0: Yeah. So one of the ways to think about it, there's a a model in the book, there's really 10 different concrete steps that you take in order to design it. And I think about it a lot like architecting a building or putting plumbing within a new building. It's actually really important that each of the pieces are fit together in a particular order. But conceptually, one of the, the at the heart of the book is this idea of ecosystem where you have uh, your ideal client who's in the center of an ecosystem. And it is the place where they already are looking for information, resources, support in order to solve the particular problem that your company, you or your company, is also helping them to solve. So there are um, examples of things like other thought leaders that they follow. So maybe experts that write books on topics or do TED Talks that they're following for resources or information. There can be associations that they belong to that give them support and information. There are media hubs, particular podcasts they might listen to or blogs. Mm. There are... uh, Products or services they use. Every single one of my clients, myself included, use a lot of software as a service, SaaS products to run their business. And so, in each of those cases, we're just beginning to identify who are all these other ecosystem partners that are also committed to the mission of serving our our ideal client and solving their problem. There's the first part of really doing the analysis of figuring out who are some of these people that, if we began to connect, share ideas, resources, and support could make each one of us better. There's the, I call it the the accordion principle. So sometimes you have to go way out and you look at the totality of the ecosystem. You look at all the different possibilities of folks and then you zero in and say, okay, this is one missing link. Maybe we're in an industry That has been around for a long time. I think of something like public utility. Like I mentioned, my dad worked worked for for a long time. It's been around a long time. People are used to doing things a certain way. Maybe some of the ecosystem partners we need to be looking at are people who are really focusing ahead in the future. Right, we just we need people who might have more research, more understanding, more future focus to infuse some excitement or enthusiasm. Or maybe we realize that for our the folks who we're hiring, we need somebody who's doing really interesting new new work in culture development, you know, within the utility industry. So you can begin to really look at ways in which you can focus the kind of partnerships that you that you want to have and. In in doing it slowly, at first, you just have conversations. I'm a big fan of having the 15 or 20-minute conversation with somebody just to learn about them, let them know what it is that you do, and then slowly share. In, in the social world that we work in, I know for a lot of folks, even those that work for larger companies, they are sharing on LinkedIn, right? They're sharing their perspective about the role they might have in the organization, what their approach is to, to doing things, and when you can begin to share this great information about other ecosystem partners with your clients. I found that it makes you a more valuable person. Like the greatest compliment to me is people are like, gosh, it's just so interesting. Like i love to follow your work because you're always sharing such interesting examples of people who are doing complimentary things Mm -hmm. to which inside my head, I say, yes, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm successful in highlighting these other partners. And of course in doing that, that is something that a lot of folks appreciate and then they can begin to lean in and tune into what I'm doing. And it just creates a lot of ripple and then eventually creates a lot of momentum in terms of opportunities that I get, you know, invited to or uh, things that I can participate in because we have that mutually uh, beneficial kind of work.
1: Okay. So much. I want to follow up on there, but I'm thinking about then this desire of building an ecosystem and even connecting with people who do similar things takes a mm-hmm. level of kind of a level of confidence. And, a, and, and, and if scarcity is running that or competition, an unhealthy competition, not the healthy competition you're talking about that, you know, mm-hmm. with competitive martial arts, but a power over or a, you know, where, where shame comes in and they're not good enough. Cause if that's running the show, then this ecosystem is not possible. It's just simply now, it just takes a genuine curiosity and a, a feeling of not being threatened by an ecosystem approach still seems to feel scary to a lot of people. It doesn't feel like a lot of people are doing it or there isn't a lot of self-trust. And I know you run into those leaders. How do you help them build a little bit more self-trust and recognize that collaboration, you know, kind of, you know, we, you talk community over competition, Right. But how, how do you work with them practically if they're struggling with that fear of, you know, losing reputation or not knowing it all or someone taking away business?
0: It goes back to the earlier conversation we had about uh, what it takes before you do any kind of an intervention inside a company. There yeah. has to be that awareness and that willingness to be open to making a change. If if somebody just completely disagrees, which is totally fine. I have a really clear point of view based on my own experience and research and my values and the way that I think things should go, there are lots and lots and lots of people who are uh, promoting and upholding more of the empire, right? Dominant culture world. And it's it business paradigms, models come from socioeconomic, historical contexts. And it's part of looking at something like empire culture. Um, it There are components. When I look at a lot of how I've been influenced by ecosystem culture, my husband is Navajo, uh, and we do a lot of work with, with Native entrepreneurs here. When I look at many communities of color within Latinx, within Black communities, within Native communities, Asian communities, you can see, for example, that there is a different worldview often in terms of how it is that change happens or how folks work together. Right. There's a there can be a a specific socio cultural context I know within my own identity as a white woman of different ways in which history has shown up in which what it is that we see as being right, like the right way to show up to be the sole person who's going out, claiming land, manifest destiny, you know, all these things That's it's pretty fascinating and often disturbing for me now, right, to see the other side of history where there are components of that that have actually been very detrimental over the long term. And it's never just, you know, defined, just like we said, for different generations, you know, only to people that that are from one identity. But those forces of just looking for the individual outcome, not looking in the long term, not necessarily looking sideways and across for if we're simply looking to extract the majority of financial gain from a business activity, um, there's always going to be folks who are excited about that, right? That's just, that's a force that has been part of our history for so long. And for me, part of my passion in doing my work and writing books and talking about this is just to show there's also been a way for a long period of time in which people have been looking out for each other, in which people have been sharing resources, have not only been looking at their own well-being, but that of others within their family and within their community. And it, one is not mutually exclusive, like you you don't have to forego having a healthy business making money when you are looking to do more partnerships. In fact, with everybody that I've worked with, um, when you begin to really activate more of this ecosystem model, you have more flow, more clients, more opportunities. It really does open up many more possibilities for you to be connecting with people and creating business opportunity. Um, but it's why, it's so important, I think, to be talking often about the historical context and the way that we talk about business, because there's always underlying assumptions that are based on values and behaviors. And there are people who will radically agree with what I'm saying. And then other people who have said clearly throughout the years, like, this makes no sense. Why are you doing this? Why are you investing so much time and energy in community? And I think, you know, for each of us, that's where we have to use our best judgment for what we think in the long term is going to be the very best solution. Mm.
1: Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And so shifting to leaders, finding community, that's something that I hear a lot. And I felt it myself of finding community and common ground with peers these days. I mean, there's been a lot of understandable logistics and literal like bandwidth and capacity and zoom fatigue and all those things. And people are so busy caring for, you know others and leading others that they neglect their own needs and the reflex to compete and then isolate are very strong because I don't think folks get into what they do because they don't want to do well and succeed and be the best, um, but it only perpetuates many still feeling lonely and frustrated and untrusting. I'm wondering for you if you tell me about a time when you struggled with navigating that reflex to compete and to isolate when that came up for you and. Because I think it's the best of us. And what helped ground you?
0: Yeah, I I'm trying to think if there was ever a time where I didn't have. I'm such a community builder that I have always built a business in the context of community and always done done that work. I, uh, I the times where I find that I let myself get stuck is maybe where I'm at a point of trying to like update my my business model or create some new products or ideas, and I just get too stuck in my head where <laughs> I don't invite other people in to have those conversations. Um, but there can be really specific, helpful environments. I was just speaking this week, earlier this week in Chicago at uh, Agency Management Institute, AMI, which is a association for uh, membership organization for uh, marketing agencies, and it's run by a dear friend, Drew McClellan, who's just a lovely person, very much a community ecosystem builder, but also really, really smart about what it takes to have a successful, profitable marketing agency. And it was so fun to be in a room of a few hundred people. I went there to speak about building community. And it was so fun to be in a whole room full of people who had the same kind of profession. Each of them was usually specialized in a, in a specific niche, but they were able, we had all kinds of breakouts and peer tables around different topics where people were able to have the safety to talk with each other about some of the hard parts of running an agency. And that kind of environment can be so helpful. For some people, it's belonging to a mastermind of people from maybe so a little bit of different profession. For others, you might have a very specific field that you're in, you know, CFOs and high tech or something where it could be really helpful to be talking to people who understand your experience. I think that is so grounding. You learn so much and it creates this really wonderful um, feeling of mentorship and partnership.
1: It's so true. I think some of the times I get the most stuck is when I'm in my head and I just need to download Give air to some of these thoughts, ideas, struggles with other folks who, you know, get it. I, I love, and I love that this was hard for you to answer because community building, this lens is so in your bones. This is just mm-hmm. your, it's, but I love that. I want to shift to success and I'm curious how you view success. How do you define it now? And how is that different from what you were taught?
0: I, Define success. One of the definitions I used in body of work that still is pretty true today is to enjoy my life while I'm living it. And so inherent in that are where there are a few things that need to be in place. I need to really be enjoying the work that I'm doing wholeheartedly embracing and giving respect to who I'm working with. Because as soon as I start to get to a place where I'm a little bit tired or burnt out, I know like the early stage when I was doing about 10 years of early stage startup with Escape from Cubicle Nation, where people were leaving corporate just to start their first business, that work was so, so fun until it became a little bit boring where I'm like, oh, here we go. Another conversation about should I have an LLC or an S corp or how do I start a website? And so as soon as I start to feel that edge is where I push myself always to be in the zone of doing work I love. I need to be at a given time making the kind of money that I require for supporting myself, my family, the kinds of things we want. So a lot of it is really just being conscious about that. But I, I was really lucky in that my, my dad is a, was a huge inspiration to me as a photographer, photojournalist, extremely passionate about what he did right up until the very end. I would always tell him he was going to like hold a camera in his hands until he couldn't. And that's literally what happened. He worked as a freelancer up, uh, until his final, final years. And, um, I, I really witnessed that I think for my dad where he was just so grounded and enjoyed what he did. It's part of what really kept kept him fresh. My mom is so present and she's a wonderful friend. She's so passionate about family. She really helps to ground me and center me and like the joy of being a parent and not skipping over that. So mm-hmm. that's just very present for me. That's That's the main thing that I try to stay on top of. You've had
1: incredible mentors and role models and whether they come from our parents or other people in our lives, that really, really makes a difference. It really yeah. makes a difference to to have. A, and And so I think that what would it look like to, you know, to do what you're doing and enjoy it and like to live your life and enjoy it and be present to it real time? That mm. I think is, that's enough to shoot for. It's not, what's your investment plans or what are your next steps or what's your growth edge and all those. Let's just keep it simple right now. <laughs>
0: Let's just focus on that. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's, it's going to be different for each person and different at different stages of life, for sure. So one one question too, is this what you
1: thought, one more final question I should say, is this what you thought you'd be doing today?
0: No, 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 no. I don't think I saw it coming. I didn't really know, I When asked when I was little, I probably said, "Oh, I want to be a teacher," uh, because my my mom and my grandma were teachers. But uh, my degree in college was actually community development, so it's really funny I had a specialization in the use of non formal education as a tool for social and economic change. I was focused in Latin America, in Mexico and Colombia, and then Brazil for my studies. But really, that's actually what I'm doing here every day: (laughs) is non formal education as a tool for social and economic change. So actually there's, there's been a path. It's not always been a straight line, but it really has brought me back to probably the greatest amount of joy that I have where I can be advocating for community. I can actively be building community and helping people take, you know, twinkles in their eye to actual like full blown businesses that make a positive impact in the world. And I I couldn't ask for anything better than that.
1: Well, I appreciate the example that you're giving so many of us. Thank you. So I want to wrap up with some quick fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So what are you reading right now?
0: I will be very um, honest right now. I've been traveling on planes and I have been like reading sort of like romantic Kindle, like what is it? Spicy talk or something on TikTok? I think initially got me connected to that. And it's been great. I went to Philadelphia. I went to Chicago and I'm like three, four, five hours go by. And it's just, it's kind of just reminded me. Cause of course I read tons of business books all the time. Cause friends, clients, partners are sending them, which I use for research, but I kind of forgot the joy of like that summer read that like trashy novel on the beach. And it is so dang enjoyable. So I'm sure Amazon's having like a field day with my algorithm now. Because they're like, what happened? (laughs) She used to read like business books. And now it's all about spicy romance. So Spicy talk on
1: TikTok. (laughs) I am learning new things every day. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: What song are you playing on repeat? Probably because of TikTok too. Um, Lizzo's new song. Uh, yeah, it's one of these really catchy, catchy songs that has a whole dance. I have teenagers. So, you know, we have a lot of TikTok in the house, but I love a good pop tune myself.
1: Oh my gosh. Have you seen Lizzo's Amazon document or a kind of reality show where she's. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Transformational. It is amazing. amazing. Talk about leadership. Pay attention to Lizzo and her choreographer and how they talk to each other and lead the team, too. It is amazing. It's just love it. I love it. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently?
0: I've gone way down the like European, like period drama. Sanditon was really fun. And I've watched, I don't even know the names of like a million Italian, French, you know, Scottish ones. My husband came home on one day. He's like, can we please watch something in English? Like, I'm really tired <laughs> of reading the subtitles. So it's <laughs> I've exhausting.
1: Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. What is your favorite 80s movie or piece of pulp culture? Moonstruck, 100%. Oh my day, gosh. I've not thought about that movie. Sharon Best Nic- movie of all
0: time. Sharon Nicholas Cage, right? Yes, Sharon Nicholas Cage. Ask my kids. I quote from Moonstruck at least three times a day, and they're like, "Not oh Moonstruck God. again." But it's the greatest <laughs> movie of all time. That's that's
1: uh, my kids with uh, me quoting Duran Duran songs, which actually don't mean much, but still, it's Duran Duran. What is your
0: mantra right now? We all need each other. That that's that is been the mantra, really, the hashtag as in all the seven years that I've been writing the book. I see it all day, every day, in pretty much every aspect of our life. We, If we're going to get through this extremely pivotal time, I mean, it, without hyperbole, like we are not going to survive as humans for many more generations at all, maybe not past our own generation if we don't figure some stuff out. My 17-year-old the other day was like, mom, when I'm learning in earth and space science like about climate change... We really need to make some changes or like by 2100, you know, there's going to be even more significant things happening. So the stakes are so high. And we have to really learn how to work together in order to resolve things
1: what's an unpopular opinion that you hold
0: it's one I've already talked about in the podcast i I think it's so important to talk about history from a multitude of perspectives I think it's so important to be looking at really systemic change in some of the systems that have impacted folks differently and I always find I uh, I either get a reaction if I'm on a podcast or on a stage or something like that where I can notice folks lean in and maybe smile and nod I also notice when people lean out maybe get less comfortable. But I just find it's such an important thing. It's it's liberating. It actually is extremely connecting, which I know for a lot of folks a, a bit counterintuitive that the more we're able to look sometimes at the hard truths, at the ways that maybe, you know, different people have been impacted in, in more severe ways, it helps us to have much better, more intelligent design for the future. So mm-hmm. probably never will stop talking about systemic impacts on our society, about the impact of, you know, sometimes a very patriarchal culture. It's just part of the lens through which I see the world. And I think we need to find a path through it
1: leaning in on that one from my yep. end. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Uh,
0: my kids are absolutely my best barometer. I have my daughter, especially is <laughs> she's just really funny, really honest and truthful. And so she will absolutely tell me if I'm being cringy, uh, very clearly and directly. And she <laughs> is one of my biggest champions. I just did a, a Talk in Phoenix at the um, Creator Economy Expo uh, earlier this month. And so we were here local and she asked if she could come and um and sit in. And it was just so inspiring to me. I was just so conscious about the way I was showing up, what I was talking about. And uh, you know, she told me, she's like, if people don't laugh at your jokes, don't worry, I will sit in the back and I will laugh really loudly, you know, for you. And then I hope, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this, but she said it was so wonderful at the, at the end, you know, everybody left the room when we were talking and she said, mom, you know, when you were talking and I noticed that people were leaning in and they were really connecting with the message, she said, I felt it too. Like I felt like in some way they were really like leaning in for me as well. And I said, God, I said, you know, we're, we're related. Like you, were, I actually grew you inside my body, you know, we're connected that way. But I also felt it, I think more in that metaphorical mother daughter of like, I really need to be leading and I want to be leading in a way in which she is really proud. And she feels that, that real sense of, of integration, um, by, by what I'm modeling. So it doesn't get better than that to me. Of course I was weeping.
1: <laughs> I'm getting choked up just thinking about it too that is yeah. a, that's a beautiful word to end this mm-hmm. really really enlightening and insightful conversation Pam thank you so much for your time today I have no doubt anyone listening to this is going to get a lot out of it thank you so much for your time today but also for your leadership how you're showing up in the world and helping call us all up to be better and and reminding us that we really do need each other
0: I appreciate it so much thanks for having me
1: Traumas of all kinds continue to break down community, and we need to stop fearing naming these things and instead respect their presence so we can tend to them and help heal them because difficult life experiences influence how we build and lead community. The impact of our individual and collective trauma impacts our ability to feel connected to a larger community and often just fuels our individualistic lenses. Pam showed us we can push back on toxic community by having an ecosystem lens to how we lead and cultivate community. So I'm curious for you, what support do you need to move from a top-down way of leading community and move to an ecosystem way of building community? How can you support your places of work as vessels for healing? And what impact do you wanna have on the places where you lead and live? Because when you befriend your pain and the pain in others, instead of exiling it and fearing it, fearing saying words like trauma, (laughs) you can lead this pain better instead of it leading you. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the free weekly unburdened email, find this episode, show notes, and Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.